Welcome to the Disaster Tough Podcast, where we talk about emergency management by emergency managers. We share stories, lessons, and tips to help keep you moving forward. I am John Scardina, the host. I share my experience as a former federal emergency response official who's responded to some of the most extreme disasters over the past decade. I now lead a private emergency management firm called Doberman Emergency Management that focuses on emergency planning, mitigation, and response. This is episode seven. Okay, before we even start on this episode, I think I have to give a disclaimer because it's going to be kind of hard for me to hold back. We're going to be talking about Michigan. Uh, I'm from Ohio, so I'm going to try to hold back on the jokes because what happened there last week with the catastrophic dam failures absolutely should not happen in any state, and it's terrible that a small town of 40,000 had to be woken up on Tuesday, May 18th at 12.30 a.m. to sounds of immediate evacuation orders for a fourth of their population. So while I do hate the team up north, this is definitely more important than that. A quick caveat, however, if you are an Michigan fan, sorry, have it, if you are a Michigan fan, and you are looking for ways to serve up there, uh, I would suggest making some cookies. I got a pretty simple recipe for you. Just put the Wolverines in a bowl and beat them for three hours. Oh, I love that joke. Okay, so catastrophic dam failures and emergency management. So if you've seen the Doberman EMG Instagram post, then you probably caught that we were at the Hoover Dam a few months back. And we were addressing how 90% of dams in the U.S. do not have an evacuation plan for the communities at the base of those dams. This is a scary reality that we have to deal with. So just to give you a frame of reference, 25,000 dams in the U.S. are considered high risk. And 90% of dams don't have evacuation plans in place to deal with those communities or help those communities. So what happens if you are in emergency management and you're a law enforcement or you're a first responder and you get news that the dam could break here in several hours so i'm just going to walk through kind of what happens when that when that when that scenario plays out and then we're going to talk about actually how to make a plan then we're going to be talking about some of the steps that have to be taken during covid so if you don't have a plan in place and you get news that you know, there's going to be a breaching or there's going to be overtopping or there's going to be a, a major disaster, you know, total dam failure, like what happened in Michigan where it drained the entire lake. If that notice comes through, then the sheriff is going to have to be forced to make a call. So there's three scenarios that could that could really play out here. Of course, they could evacuate the num right number of people, but more likely they're either going to evacuate either a gross low number of people, not enough people, which could cause death and injury, or they're going to evacuate a gross high number of people, which causes economic impacts all over the place. And we're going to be talking about uh, in a scenario where that played out in real life here pretty soon. I, I don't blame the sheriffs. They have to make a call. And if you're in, you're in the moment where, hey, this dam's going to breach, we need the authority to, to get people out of here. That sheriff has to act, and so we do have a pretty high tolerance for failure and disasters if people act. But if they have to act without an expert opinion because we didn't put a plan in place in time, this is when it could be like a major issue for us. If you live in a community that has dams, and pretty much every county in the United States has that, you should have evacuation plans in place for those dams. A prime example of a real-world scenario where a sheriff had to make a call 
was the Oroville Dam disaster. Um, it's probably the best one I've seen, and uh, I got to see it up and close and personal. Just a, a lot of impact. So to give you some background, the Oroville Dam, they have the tallest dam I've was 777 feet, which is 300 feet above the next tallest dam. And then they get news that the emergency spillway gave and started releasing millions of gallons of water. That caused the sheriff to evacuate 165,000 people. Nursing homes were evacuated, which you can imagine the logistical problems with that of trying to get people out. Businesses had to shut down and, and get out of town. Uh, you know, everybody was trying to either find shelter with friends or with hotels. A mass sheltering was set up. So there was a lot of problems associated with the economic impact. I mean, talking about gas, even food, everything that goes along with trying to keep people out while they're trying to scramble, right? But the problem is that the sheriff had to act on minimal knowledge. Now, 165,000 people is a lot, obviously. And if there was a catastrophic failure for the entire dam, then that probably would have been a little more likely. And I think that's what they acted on. But the problem was it wasn't the entire dam. It wasn't the main structure even. It was the emergency spillway. So when you hear like the, the dam is breaking and you have to react, then if you're a sheriff, you're going, you're going to do something. You're going to evacuate everybody you can. So I don't blame the sheriff. I actually think they made the right call uh, based off the information that they had available. Despite it just being the emergency spillway, it was obviously still a huge dam, right? And they knew about this problem before it happened. Three different groups had gone in and said, hey, you know, you're going to have to repair this emergency spillway. It looks like there could be issues here. It would have been something like $100 million to fix the problem. Well, that sounds like a ton of money, right? $100 million. But it was $1.1 billion to fix. $100 million to repair your problem or $1.1 billion to fix that problem. Now you have a FEMA staff with all their costs. Uh, they're, they're deployed for a year trying to help people out. They're all those people who made filings for uh, with their businesses being shut down and having to evacuate and food, shelter, clothing, the whole deal. I mean, talk about a nightmare scenario where you've had to deal with a major problem for something that could have been fixed at a much lower cost, much faster, and obviously not having to cause people to scramble. So you really do have two main issues when you're coming up with a dam uh, evacuation plan. You have the mitigation not possibly being taken seriously, so you did your HVA, but people won't listen. We're going to address how to overcome that. And the other problem is you might not have done your plan, right? You could have a minimal plan in place with very specific parameters and cannot address all the all the different scenarios, including a failure of the spillway. So you need to overcome both those issues. With Michigan's catastrophic dam failures, they ended up evacuating 10,000 people. And there were fears that there would have been water up to nine feet high in the downtown area of that town. The worst news is they were they knew about this issue for years, like 21 years they've known about this issue, all the way back from 1999, where issues were raised about the dam. In 2017, the Federal Energy Regulatory Commission said this, Given Edaville's dam's high hazard potential rating, the potential loss of life and destruction of property and infrastructure is grave should the project not be maintained and operated appropriately with consequences that could certainly affect the villages of Sanford, Norwood University, City of Midland, Michigan, and other areas downstream. Whoops. Everybody knew about this. Everybody knew about this problem, and the dam didn't do anything, and now the dam is being sued. There's a PR nightmare. Luckily, nobody died. 
but they had to evacuate 10,000 people, a fourth of the population of the town, as noted. The entire lake was drained. I mean, it's just on a level of, like, I can't even comprehend it. Like, like who is managing this dam? Were they Michigan fans? Uh, I'm going to get so much flack for that. Okay, so... So if you've learned that one of the problems is people not paying attention to your mitigation strategy, then this is what I would do. I would talk about it as if it was insurance. Using Oroville Dam as an example, or these other big problems that have happened, showing the the cost of time and frustration and obviously the, the dollar amount, all these other things. You know, it is a consideration of some corporations to say, like, hey, like, how much money are we going to have to give out versus our insurance policy? I mean, that's kind of like the lowest form of caring about people, right? But what they don't think about is the PR nightmare, all the times that they'll get sued, um, all the other things that could happen as a repercussion of that if they don't put it into place. So taking care of a dam is like insurance. It's an easy way to explain the idea of emergency preparedness because, you know, often people think, I don't see the problem right now, so it's not really a problem, uh, and I'll address it when it happens, and they just hope it never does happen. But they get the idea of insurance, right? Like, they have car insurance, they have home insurance, because they know the purpose of that. The real purpose of insurance is to make your life more convenient if something happens. So that's what this is, right? Mitigation is insurance. It's saying, hey, if we have several rainstorms that come into the area, like what happened in Michigan, and our dam hits max capacity, then we're not going to have to worry about uh, a bigger problem because we mitigated this. We spent a little bit of money compared to the amount of frustration, headache, and you know, financial impact if we don't take care of it. So when the storms of life come through, you know, quite literally for a dam and there's issues, then, you know, there's no problem. People can sleep easy instead of being woken up at 1230 in the morning for a dam evacuation. So if we know how to address it a little bit better by talking about insurance and talking about how it saves them frustration, it's a convenience thing, then we can move on to hazard vulnerability assessments. Now, hazard vulnerability assessments, I'm just going to give you how Doberman Emergency Management goes through that. I'll just a little bit of a walkthrough. If you do a proper HVA, then it will influence the hazard mitigation plan or the threats and hazards identification risk assessment, the Thyras, a lot better. You can use data to say, hey, these are our gaps and this is what we have to fix, okay? So with the dam, the first lesson is most dams are built to last for 50 years. So before you even get Army Corps of Engineers out there, before you get another engineering group out there to do an assessment, which could cost a lot of money, the very first thing you should do is you should just look up when the dam was built. If you know you're in high risk, then you should be taking you know uh, immediate action to, to mitigate those risks, whether it's updates or whatever. As noted before, 25,000 dams in the U.S. are noted as high risk. So that's step one is just to figure out how old the dam is. Step two is to get that assessment done from engineers and emergency management staff who can look at all the different parameters of gaps and issues related to the dam and the communities that are at the base of those dams. And then step three is to apply that HVA to the HMP or the Thyra. What we do within Doberman Emergency Management, we have to recognize where our expertise lies, okay? If we're talking about mustering procedures or creating emergency volunteer staff organizations or mass care or evacuation plans, we can design those plans, but we're not engineers. So what we do if there's an engineering issue is we contact those authorities who can 
go and do an engineering assessment on the dam or the levees or uh, the road systems. If we're trying to create evacuation routes, then we're going to have to get surveys done, for example. Okay, so we combine and we collaborate as true emergency managers with all the different parties that would be involved to help make an expert opinion. So make sure you're working with all the proper authorities and people with expertise on doing that. Even go beyond your own scope of understanding to get that, that check. So I've been trained in both firefighting and law enforcement techniques, but if I'm going to be at a hospital or if I'm going to be at a school or some corporation, I need to make all hazards plans. I'm going to definitely reach out to the fire marshal or local law enforcement authorities and say, hey, can we collaborate together because we need to make sure that it's following local code and there's other parameters in place here. People who have thought about this 100% of the time. So we don't have to be jack of all trades and master of none. We can really focus on what we're good at and bring in the other parties who uh, focus on that as well. So after we collaborated with everybody, we had to start addressing weight. And what I mean by weight is a weight of a, uh, an algorithm. So there's three parts of this. There's life, there's property, and there's continuity of operations. Obviously, most of the time, life has the most weight in our algorithm. We put a lot of weight onto making sure we can save lives. However, this is the really hard part about it being an emergency manager because we care about people. We're humanitarians by nature. But sometimes the people are not as important as the property or continuity of operations. That can be hard to hear and might be hard to understand. But let me give you an example. In the earthquake, tsunami, Fukushima disaster of 2011 in Japan, the Fukushima power plant was dealing with a potential catastrophic failure. 22 really brave engineers stayed behind despite the extreme risk of their, their own life because they knew that if there was a nuclear disaster on that kind of scale, it would be a true catastrophic disaster and uh, it can impact the world in a major way. So these 22 brave men, again, decided to stay within the plant and either prevent or dramatically decrease the level of impact. They were willing to deal with the outcome that in a worst case scenario that they could have died, those 22 die, was not as important as taking care of the community at whole. And as an emergency manager, you're going to have to make those calls. Uh, you're not going to be able to go into every neighborhood at the same time in the mass flooding event. You're going to have to figure out where the first responders are going to go. You're going to have to make that call. Can you do that? And can you be okay with that? You know, knowing that disasters are not clean as in clean cut. You know, disasters are a disaster for a reason. It's a chaos scenario. It's things are broken down and lives are going to be potentially impacted forever. But we don't have unlimited resource and um, we have to make the best call what we can make and be okay with that. The good news is it's pretty straightforward. Okay, get people out of the way. You know, there's a lot of water coming through. Get people out of the way. There's something else you can do. So here are some things that you want to do with your dam HVA and getting people out of the way, okay? I wrote down nine things that we would do. This isn't a comprehensive list, but it is a starting point of where you should be looking at, okay? So number one, what is the max extent for total dam failure? Like how many gallons per, of water per minute? How fast will it travel? Where will it travel? And how high will the water be? For example, in Michigan, they thought there would be nine feet of water in downtown at one point. Okay, they had done an assessment on that. Number two, are there other points of failure on the dam? And what are their specific max extents for failure? 
like for example, what emergency spillway gives, but the dam as a whole is fine. Number three, how many people live in the path of the floodwaters? That's like the most obvious one, right? Uh, how many people are you gonna have to evacuate? Number four, what are your evacuation routes and have you had reverse flow traffic conditions before? There's lots of different disasters out there and they sometimes employ reverse traffic, but doing it for the first time, especially if your community's never done it or the law enforcement's never practiced it, never seen what that's like, then that can cause potential holdups as well. So you need to be able to think about that and get training for those, those law enforcement officials so that they know how to do reverse traffic. Number five, how long will it take? Given the current evacuation routes, will it take to get everyone at each interval of a failure? And what I mean by interval is, do we know the specific parameters and how long it will take to get those sections of the community out safely? Number six, what type of dam is it? And you're gonna to wanna to know this. It's like, is it an arch dam? Is it a coffer, a diversion, embankment, whatever? There's like 10 or 12 different types of dams. You should really know what type of dam you have and their purpose and what happens if they break. There's different types of debris and there's different ways that a dam could break based off the way it's designed. Number seven, security measures for protecting the dam. Not all dam breaks could happen accidentally. Somebody could try to destroy the dam. How are you protecting that? Uh, is there gaps there with that understanding, your security measures, physical security and otherwise? Eight, event-based failures. Again, uh, overtopping, foundation defects, piping and seepage failures. Uh, is it a valve failure? Each of these will have a different level of impact on the community, so your plan should address that. Nine, are emergency services or critical infrastructure in the path of the floodwaters, and what would their impact be if you had a multi-hazard event? Okay, so we have a community that lives in the base of the dam, and some genius thought it was a really cool idea for picturesque to put the fire station right at the base of the dam, right? Right where the water turns, there's this big fire station and you have a problem. Now, regulation has probably helped this out quite a bit in recent years, but there might be an old fire station there, a police station, even a hospital. We, we've seen hospitals in the path of a dam before. Okay, if they're impacted, how are you gonna help people? Especially if the first responders aren't able to get out. Uh, there are multi-hazard events. You have an earthquake that could cause a dam failure, for example. How does that look? Okay, so those are the first nine. There's a lot more, but this gives you a really good starting point. After you conclude your HVA, you'll need to go on to mitigation. You won't be able to create 100% safety in all aspects of life, but you should identify the gaps that you can overcome and that are most pertinent for safety and security. If you've identified a major gap and you don't get any traction from local leadership, again, I would employ the approach of insurance and talking about how much of a headache it will be for them if they don't act. That gets people's attention more than really anything else. You know, the dams in Michigan were noted to having issues all the way back to 1999 but people didn't apparently take it very seriously. So I, I alluded to that I think that there was a plan in place, and I, I've talked about how they evacuated people several hours before the disaster actually happened, 12.30 a.m. evacuation orders to 6 p.m. the same day of when it actually broke. They got people out, there was no deaths. I, I'm pretty sure that they had something in place. Again, things don't go that smoothly unless something was in place. So again, major kudos to them and for the sheriff and everybody else who coordinated but now if you're from the EOC perspective and you get a call saying, hey, we think we're going to have a major problem because we've had 
you know, major rainstorms for the past several days. What does that look like if you've never stood up an EOC event? So the first thing that they're going to do is they're going to create their ops period. Uh, they're going to say, hey, let's let's figure out our priorities. Priorities are obviously life-saving, life-sustaining. They're going to want to contact shelters. So you're like your Red Cross shelters, for example, or your state-coordinated shelters. Um, how many people can they hold? Uh, you're going to be looking at all that. You're also going to be looking at um, coordinating with first responders, setting up potential points for uh, urban search and rescue, all focusing on the mission of life-saving, life-sustaining. Pretty straightforward stuff. So there's going to be a lot of coordinating between these critical points of the disaster response. So one note, if you're a firefighter and you're listening to this, or even if you're in law enforcement and there's a dam failure, okay, I really need you to listen to this point. People with autism are attracted to water. Now that might throw you through a loop a little bit, but it's true. People with autism are attracted to water. So if there's a report of uh, an earthquake and then people get separated and they're, they're, they can't find an, an individual who has autism, go to the nearest source of water. It's a phenomena that I don't fully understand, but I do know that it has been a problem in the past and it's a problem we can solve. If people with autism are missing a disaster, I cannot stress this enough, head to the water. I hope that as we train community emergency response teams, those so CERT teams, that this is part of the, the major training that gets through is this is where somewhere where they can really help is go to sources of water just to watch out for people could get hurt themselves. Okay, so going back to, to kind of that EOC, that uh, strategic level away from that tactical level response, your EOC has now been activated. First responders are assisting with evac orders and crowd assistance. But now we have to deal with another major beast. And that beast's name is COVID-19. Now we have to take additional precautions of helping out first responders, volunteers, and survivors in the COVID environment. And unfortunately, the most prominent idea that I've heard about housing people in mass care, probably also the most unsustainable option for mass care, is trying to use hotel rooms to separate people. I've heard this idea, again, like I said, thrown around quite a bit in different meetings I've been at. And uh, it does obviously keep everybody isolated, but it's just not feasible. If you've been in a true mass care incident where there are thousands of people, 165,000 people evacuated, for example, like this is just not going to stack up. It takes up so much space. There's other options. People who have self-evacuated are uh, taking up those hotel rooms, for example, and especially in the COVID environment where hotels have been acting under reduced capacity, do they even have the staff to keep everything up and running and clean? So you're going to have that issue. I would suggest that we take uh, a tactic from the United Nations and international humanitarian relief, like those refugee camps, using tents. Tents is a great option because you can use tents and tarps inside or outside, right? They don't need to be staked into the ground if they're inside, just in the gym, and it keeps everybody separated. And if they're outside, then obviously it's protecting against weather and everything else, and so you're able to house a lot of people. Now, it does take a lot more time to set up, but at least uh, you can house more people in a smaller space and they're still protected from each other. Another option would be to use like a tarp system where you're using PVC piping and you put up tarp partitions all over the gym. And so the people who are with their family are staying within that tarp partition. But again, this takes a lot of time. That's another thing you have to th think about is the social distancing aspect of just housing people. If it takes more time to set up, 
people become antsy. How are you going to deal with restrooms and keeping people safe there, especially with the social distancing? How are you going to do accountability checks? We like to check people in as they come into the shelter, make sure that they don't have weapons and make sure that they're acting prudently and we know everybody who's there. So if we have to do that, then how do we keep that distance between the survivor who just wants to feel safe and normal and the volunteer who's maybe nervous that they could get sick? And if they do get sick, then you have a major problem, especially if you have an outbreak at a shelter. Could you imagine the nightmare that would be? Now you have to separate people from the shelter and you'd have to set up COVID camp, essentially, where it'd be like a medical uh, tent system. And again, we're talking about PR nightmares. This would be a major PR nightmare. Red Cross sets up shelter. Everybody gets COVID, right? You don't want that story. So you have to put a lot of things in place to make sure that you don't have those problems. Okay, and then, and finally, you have to deal with food. If you're now dealing with food in the COVID environment, all food has to be individually wrapped. It's just an absolute must right now. How are you going to give food to people? They can't do buffet style. Health department's going to be all over that. So it is going to take a lot more time to get these things done. You really need to have a pandemic response plan uh, as part of your evacuation plan. So that's our advice I would give for setting up a dam evacuation plan, especially in the COVID environment, looking at mitigation and how to address that appropriately, looking at it from the angle of insurance. And then we try to give you some ideas of how to address these concerns I've tried to hold back the Michigan jokes. Uh, of course, we try not to extend this too much beyond football because when it comes down to it, a life is a life and it's worth saving. And I would be proud and honored to go and help out people in Michigan. And then I would go to dinner with them and we'd make our jokes about our two football teams and have a good laugh. And then I would remind them that Ohio State has won, you know, basically 20 years in a row. So it would be a good conversation. But if you are a Michigan fan, I'm sorry your team is lost, but I hope that your state recovers quickly from this and that those after actions, those lessons learned from this dam failure can apply to other communities within the state of Michigan and throughout the U.S. You know, Michigan's had some pretty big events dealing with water over the last several years between Flint and these dams and everything else. And we hope that you remain safe during this COVID response. My name is John Scardina. I am with the Doberman Emergency Management Group. If you need help creating your plan and you need assistance, please reach out to us at the Doberman Emergency Management Group. If you like this episode, please subscribe and give us that five-star rating to let us know you liked it. Please feel free to send us an email uh, with questions, comments, concerns, whatever, at info at DobermanEMG.com. Again, that's info at DobermanEMG.com.